Good Wednesday morning. Today, John is speaking about hope for the young. He just got done with a trip to Mobile, and he came back from that, and he has some insights that he wants to share. So here we go. It was a lovely trip, uh, apart from the fact that when I got back, uh, I found I'd got uh, Omicron. So I was uh, laid aside for a few days, and then my wife, of course, got it. So she's just recovering. Uh, she was determined that the end of was nigh, you know, as people are when they have these things. But I think uh, she's now returned to the land of the living. So heaven is not yet for her. But it feels like that at a time. I've never had a cough quite like it. Uh, uh, wasn't that febrile. I mean, it didn't feel like malaria or anything like that. But not nice. But the truth on uh, overall was beautiful. Uh, one of the most enjoyable I've ever had. Uh, um, it began straight away by realizing just how connected things are. Um, because uh, in the first session, uh, a couple turned up who I've stayed with before, but currently her mother's uh, got dementia they're, they're, and they're having stuff done to their house, so I wasn't staying with them. But they turned up at the first session and... Um, the, the surgeon made a comment. He said, uh, uh, you guys in the audience uh, are probably not aware because uh, you were still in short trousers, so to speak, when uh, we first came across John Patrick. And uh, it turned out it was my first ever visit to focus on the family's physician conference. I think closing that conference was an utterly incomprehensible uh, action on the part of Focus when uh, James Dobson retired. I mean, it was such a superb conference. But anyway, uh, they'd gone along and uh, uh, they'd looked at the long list of uh, people speaking. I, nobody knew me from Adam at that point. But uh, Kelly, the wife of the family, said, that looks like an interesting title. And she's a great enthusiast and she decided she was going to be enthusiastic about me that week. And uh, so a modest attendance at the first one and full for the second. And now I realize it's probably Kelly's doing. It also meant when they went back that they decided they had to do something more uh, for the medical community's Christian faith in Mobile. Um, they invited me down there to do that. So the guy who's been working for them for years discovered as I did at that moment, that in an indirect sort of way, I, I had paved the way for his salary, which is rather, rather sweet. Um, but things said in one place turn up in another, and only God knows how the connections are made. They're so tenuous, but so strong. So that was a lovely start. Uh, but then to have, uh, I don't know, 50 or 60 students et al um, in a not very uh, comfortable environment because it's a summer camp which is let to them free at this time of year and they bring their own food and it's all a bit ad hoc and uh, you sleep in a cabin designed for the summer so you put about six uh, sleeping bags around you and you're fine but what was delightful to me is that uh, I've come across quite a few students and a lot of my colleagues who are talking about how flat emotionally students are at the moment. Well, these weren't. 
they were not bubbling or anything like that, but they were seriously uh, wanting to talk and to be talked to. Um, there's hope. Perhaps the uh, the moment that made it clearest for me was uh, a sort of ad hoc extra fitted into the program with a bunch of guys, about ten of them, and they just wanted to talk about reading. And here there were medical students, and a couple of them admitted they hadn't read anything, perhaps other than their Bible, uh, unrelated to medicine since they'd entered medical school. That's utterly unacceptable. I mean, this is what's happening to their soul. Well, what's happening to their soul is it's shriveling, and we've been run through COVID by people like that who probably never read anything of any great importance about what it means to be human. And so they looked at COVID through the epidemiological stats and reduced everyone to to mere numbers. And it was an unprecedented uh, disaster. So we started talking about books and it was deeply moving to realize these guys had been robbed of their heritage. School has lost its way. Um, and it was very sad to watch them come to terms. And I'm sure a reading group is going to come out of it. I got back and uh, just passing on this view, Sally had come across a Victor David Hansen uh, article on uh, uh, in the City Journal uh, talking about the death of the classical education program and that it's leaving the university and going to go outside it because people are hungry for it. Um, I know from what has happened to me over the years that it is not true that it's all over for Christianity. It, instead, it, quite the opposite is happening, but it's a serious form that they realize it's not going to be easy. Uh, not at all. But they realize it's the only answer out there. The hysterics that go on in the woke world have got to come to an end. The failure of the New Zealand Prime Minister, the ultimate example of the virtue-signalling uh, female hero uh, who's now decided that she can't win the next election, so rather than lose, she'll leave it to someone else. Uh, uh, Douglas Murray's take on her is worth listening to. He's an astute observer. We all know uh, that there are some people we trust, but not as many as we would wish. And in medicine, you know perfectly well, wherever I go, I can say to people, if I was to, I can ask an audience and say, if if I was to ask you all to give me the top um, internists, the top surgeons in town, would I get a, rendering, ra a random scattering of names? And the answer, of course, is no. There are very few doctors' doctors in each town, and they don't come up on who's the best whatever on the internet. Uh, quite often, uh, they, shall we say, are somewhat lacking in social skills, but everybody knows they do their job better than anyone else. And ultimately, that's why you need a family practitioner and someone like that between you and the endpoint, because... They are only concerned with competence. Uh, they're not concerned with virtue signaling, which is what's 
dominant in our world at the moment, and it can't last. So hopefully that will show. Uh, I always point out to people, um, especially the young, that good things are not laid out like a smorgasbord where you take what you want from what's on the table. Uh, they are fundamentally hierarchical, which is what Jordan Peterson uh, understands to a considerable degree. I don't agree with him entirely about the hierarchy because from the point of view of culture, you can divide cultures in the world into two with one question. Do you live in a culture where truth dominates loyalty or a culture where loyalty trumps, trumps truth? Now, we're just seeing this at the moment in in Canada with ministers who clearly from come from cultural backgrounds that put loyalty over truth, so they have rewarded their friends when they got into power. And they would see nothing wrong with that because that's normal for all except Jewish and Christian cultures. Now we play games, not making it too obvious in the usual British uh, cynical, polite approach, but nevertheless, um, that difference actually matters. Truth, when it's top, means competence is top. Loyalty, when it's top, means your, what should I say, I used to say Rolodex, but your list of contacts is top. Competence it hardly shows at all. And we can see it everywhere where incompetence is taking over because of connections instead of the people who should be doing it, doing it. We... We need to go back to a regular reading of Lewis's Abolition of Man, a lovely passage at the end of the first chapter. For the wise men of old, the Middle Ages, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform your soul to objective reality, namely God. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline and virtue, a virtue list in which truth would be top. But for the modern man, the cardinal problem of human life is how to conform the world to our desires and the solution is technique. Technique is not as great as it's cracked up to be if it's not controlled by real virtues, the ancient ones. Um, technique can make you look like what you're not, can't it? One-on-one uh, -on -one conversation, it's harder to maintain. And that's why uh, we need to Think about that a lot more, and it will do the church a lot of good, because that's what the church is about. Face-to-face -face, uh, meetings where people begin to deal with the issues that matter most of all to them. Uh, that's what I watched in uh, Mobile well, last weekend. No, sorry, the weekend before, the one that's just gone. Um, there was a seriousness... Uh, which is really, it's not that common. They, uh, they were a bit perhaps intimidated by me to begin with, um, but they warned very quickly. Uh, I guess they don't meet many people who've read as much as I have. Um, and yet, that should have been the case for everyone. I mean, the only thing you really need to do with a child early on is get them reading, uh, not looking at screens. Uh, the difference between the word and the image is hugely important. When, when you look at an image, what you see is what you get. 
and you get all these attempts to look like the image on Instagram and goodness knows where. The female sex seems to be particularly devoted to all looking the same, because when I go into a magazine shop, I can walk past all those female uh, orientated magazines, and to me, it looks like the same person on every cover. Um, they're all trying to look like some imagined ideal, which doesn't, of course, exist. Now, when you listen to stories, it's entirely different, because now your imagination is involved. And for children, their imaginations are wonderful to watch, and you, you don't want to wreck them. Somewhere Chesterton points out how excited they are about the world early on. It says, you, you can read a story to a small child, and even they got into the room and there was a door. And the child is excited about the fact that there's a door. Well, yes, because everything is new, everything is exciting, and they're, they're already building their own pictures, so to speak, in their heads. But it's theirs. Uh, Sally and I both remember running home from school to get home in time for the five o'clock uh, children's hour on BBC radio. There was no television. Read by wonderfully talented actors who brought stories to life for us and then we populated them. We all knew what they, they were from our point of view. So a chance... Imagination is dramatically more stimulated by story than it is by picture books. The sooner you get to the story and beyond the pictures, the sooner you've got a child who's ready to take off. And they love the story so much, they have them word perfect. You try to shorten them, they'll be on your case immediately. And the fun you can have as a family when you can actually... Pretend uh, you don't know a story that you do just to see if they're awake, and of course they always are, uh, especially Bible stories. So a Bible picture book is nowhere near as rich as Bible stories are. And uh, I've had that particular episode replay in my life time and time and time again. Uh, a Visit with Mrs. G uh, is the... Uh, website that uh, uh, I used to use. Uh, Mrs. G has moved on now, but um, many years ago now, she realized there was, she's a pastor's wife in, in Toronto, um, but she realized that there, was a, there were opportunities in China and many so-called lockdown countries that she could use because they all wanted material for English as a second language. English is the language of the world, particularly the scientific world. So if you're going to make it in that area, you've got to talk that language. So she'd got a wonderful Welsh-speaking voice, and she simply retold the Bible stories uh, with good, clear diction and a suitable vocabulary, and she would send them free to English as a second language programs in places like China and all over the place. And so her voice is known in many countries that were uh, denying missionaries while allowing Mrs. G in with, with the Bible stories, which are the ultimate mi means of mission. And uh, over the years, I've introduced people in the US and elsewhere who became very 
Some of them very enamored of Mrs. G and pointed out that you should sell them in the U.S. We don't mind paying for them so that you can keep going. Up till that point, whenever she got an order and she didn't have the money, she'd assemble her prayer group and they'd pray the money in to send it. Um, but over the years, I would get regular uh, Mrs. G stories relayed to me when uh, uh, I was traveling around the country. And they were beautiful, how children responded to these stories. Well, one little guy uh, loved Mrs. G so much, his parents got him a little tape recorder, as it was in those days, and he would get up in the morning before the rest of the family so that he could have a visit with Mrs. G. Uh, his granny on, on the tape, who read stories to him beautifully, and uh, that ultimately will have an effect on his life because those stories provide us with a moral compass for the rest compass for the rest of our world um yeah so narrative matters and we need to recognize just how important that is uh, in child rearing and those screens have got to go i mean if you if you care about your kids the evidence is overwhelming now that it, it's dramatically diminishing their attention span um, and ruining their education. Now, this trip to Mobile actually was really astonishing to me is that they were actually out of range of their, their for their phones. There was only one place apparently where you could pick it up, so we were in contact, but the organizer didn't tell them that. And I asked them, I haven't seen you fiddling with your phones. I said, it's not available. And I asked them, are you missing them? So yes, but it doesn't matter. Now, normally it wouldn't have been like that. There are plenty of studies now of taking kids from Ivy League schools or on a weekend retreat somewhere, not a Christian one, taking their phones away from them. And they were begging for them within hours. We have a whole society that will fall apart if we take down all the phones. Just think what that means to an enemy who wants to do that. Uh, helicopter parenting and all the rest becomes impossible at that point. Uh, the world existed without this before. It can exist without them again. And you'll get much more independent and uh, important outcomes. We are failing in the imaginative area of science at the moment. The, 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 the pond higher and deeper part, the PhD part of science, you're just crossing, I, crossing T's and dotting I's for somebody else's benefit. You, it's not until you get to being, a, well, even beyond postdoc in many cases, that you're allowed to let your own imagination di direct where you will go and what you will do. And... That needs to be understood uh, because that's when really important things happen. Uh, you can stop me if I've already done this on this podcast because it struck me so strongly that I've talked about it in quite a few places now. But there is an absolutely beautiful um, piece on YouTube from Michael Faraday's uh, of Michael Faraday's day in which he discovered the electric motor. And they've made the, the video in the lecture theater where Michael Faraday worked, uh, in the, the building where Michael Faraday worked. And this lovely American has reproduced this day. And it's very interesting, a particular point I'm discussing at the moment, that Michael Faraday was not educated. And the big loss for him 
but not for us, was that he was weak in mathematics, but he was a brilliant experimenter. And so instead of being controlled by the the sense of the power of mathematics that was dominant in the 18th century, he had to use his incredible ability to see that other people missed. So he looked, he went to his lab on that day in September, and he noticed that when electricity was passed through wires under certain circumstances, he could see a little sort of movement Now, everybody else was uh, straight-line thinkers because that's the way the mathematics had worked up till that point. But he was sure he could see something important. Anyway, by the end of the day, what he had done, without any mathematics at all, was invented the electric motor in one day. And then, being the Christian man that he was, he made a little model of it to demonstrate it and sent it to all the major... um, scientists of the day who were therefore aware of this phenomenon that they'd all missed and Michael Faraday had seen. Now, the more we insist on having PC approaches to everything, that kind of inventiveness, there's no space for it. And Peter Thiel, who's trying to get young people with smart ideas to leave university and he's paying them to do it because he's aware that Imagination is failing. We're we're doing applied technology. You can tell a technologist what to do because, in principle, it's doable. But the more important science, you can't do that because until someone thinks about it, you can't even conceive of it. You can't have a, a technological program to invent the wheel. The moment you think about it, it's, in principle, so simple that you don't need a program of any sort. And yet it was a long while before we invented the wheel. But once the idea, once you thought about a wheel, that was it. There wasn't any research, no government funding required. Now, you have to excuse me, I'm going to sneeze, sorry. (laughs) Um, The only um, bit of COVID that hangs on is the throat doesn't come back to normal moisture at the right speed. But back to imagination. Imagination is very, very important. Now, the area of education where I think it shows up most beautifully is the love of rhythms uh, that children have. They love to jig around and they, they love nursery rhymes and they're perfectly capable of loving poetry, but we don't teach it anymore. Uh, I find people are so ignorant about great poetry, it is beyond belief. So I've said this before, but I want people to do it, to go and get George uh, Herbert's collection of poems and read them. Uh, they They will serve your soul in very good ways. That's why the Psalms are central to Jewish worship and should be to ours, and they used to be. Uh, until relatively recently, um, and they they need to come back. I read the Psalms. I try to do it every day. I don't always do it. One of the things that this COVID episode did was knock out my ability to even read a book for a few days. So all that's just coming back. But the Psalms are, are so so good. In they are beautiful, 
and that they the rubber hits the road. They're, they're not structured such as a, uh, a reductionistic teacher would want. And different phrases are going to hit you in different ways at different times. I mean, when Psalm 19 talks about their voice being heard in all the earth, but a really reductionist say they have no voice. Well, no, not in the sense that you want to limit the word, but everybody with a, an ounce of poetry in their soul knows exactly what's going on. But you look at the world and stand back for a moment from all your prejudices. Just enjoy it. Uh, the six-foot icicles that were hanging outside my window yesterday uh, with the sun shining through them. There's, there's no scientific way of looking at that. If you don't see the beauty of it, then you're missing something in your soul. So anybody who goes out into... Many people say, yeah, I worship in nature because I can't do it in church, and that's a sad statement, but... Wendell Berry comes in that category and has said so. But poetry can do that. Those phrases come to your mind. I, I woke up yesterday morning with a phrase in my head and I had to go and look up where it came from. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. And I knew it, that that was a quotation, but I didn't know where it was. It didn't take long. It's uh, Julian of Norwich in the... Uh, 14th century. Uh, I, uh, where did that come from at that point? You know, I was just recovering from COVID. What a, a lovely thought to wake up with. And she was an anchorite. She was. She lived in one cell attached to the church for the last half of her life and wrote um, amazing material, which is still available. Uh, we need our souls to be enriched in that way. So when you read the Psalms every day, what you're doing is putting it there, especially if you do it with children, they'll retain it all. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, when you need it, a phrase will come up. And now, at least one good thing about the internet, you can uh, put a phrase into uh, Google and you'll get to it in most cases. Not all. It's interesting what you can't get to. I mean, obviously, it's only when you find it by some other route that you know it's it's not there. If you put into Google, where was slavery first banned and on what date, you will not get the right answer. Uh, they're suppressing it because it was banned in England at the beginning of the 12th century um, when Anselm, shortly before he died, persuaded the the church in England that it was unacceptable to have slaves and they passed the rule. So there was no slavery in England from way back then. Now that doesn't fit the narrative of how slavery is supposed to be at the moment. Again, we would only have brought into the narrative if we were utterly lacking in imagination. To maintain that slavery is only white on black it's really ridiculous. I mean, where do they think the word slave came from? It came from Slavic. There were no black slaves in Europe for many, many years because we didn't get south of the equator and we certainly didn't get any further uh, east or west. They, the early slaves were taken from the Balkans because they were weak and vulnerable and they could be enslaved. The, the Brits were enslaved by... Uh, Norsemen and the like. Uh, the very word should tell you that your current way of looking at it is, is uh, well, it's culturally without depth. 
So it was really interesting to begin to talk to these young people. Uh, I had very much, sadly, the sense of uh, the old men at the second temple. The young people had not seen the first temple, the old men had. And so when the new temple was consecrated, all the young people were dancing and celebrating, but the old men wept because they had seen the first temple. And in the first temple, God's presence came down on it in a overwhelming way. Nothing like that happened with the second temple. Uh, that's why the old men wept. Um, that's a phenomenon that I had this weekend again as I realized that most of them could not even conceive of my undergraduate experience of university where uh, most Sundays I would hear an hour-long sermon and sometimes another one on Friday night. That's almost unheard of these days. But what was really sad was uh, thinking uh, the, the preacher who had most impact on me was Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached in a place called Westminster Chapel. So just this week, Sally and I, we, we found one on YouTube on Romans 8, which just took us back. It was beautiful. But we, we wondered what was happening at Westminster Chapel, and we went back to the found they have a website, of course. There is no mention of Martin Lloyd-Jones anywhere on the website. It's as though he never existed. This man had a major impact on student life. Usually a thousand students were listening to him on Sunday night, and he preached all through the war up until about 1960, 20 years. Uh, that's a lot of people. I meet people all over the world who uh, were impacted by him in that horrible use of the word impact, sorry very bad English, but his impact was huge. I can even remember sitting in the office of a professor of medicine in Ibadan in Nigeria, and he had, I saw them, Martin Lloyd's books, Lloyd-Jones's books on his shelf, and I commented on them. He said, oh, nobody reads them now. And sadly, it's not quite true, and there are recordings out there, but it, it is so sad that somebody who had that kind of impact is no longer, I think the correct term is that he is no longer accessible to the modern student. Uh, we've got to start further back to get them there. They will listen more easily than they will read, and they don't write well, and now the new AI stuff is going to make it unnecessary for them to do that. Um, that means the love of beautiful cadences in literature. That's a great loss, and I I don't know what we can do about it, but uh, Victor Davids Hansen gave me some hope this week in that he, he thinks that the classics departments that are being closed down all over the country to save money will be reopened independently uh, for small groups initially, but... Uh, the need is there. And the fact that Victor Davis Hansen can draw the audiences he does uh, as a classicist 
is wonderful. Agreed, his major interest is uh, military history in the ancient world as well. But he has a huge following, uh, along with several others uh, who are fellows at um, the Hoover Institute in in uh, Stanford. So one, I had the the privilege of, I guess, pouring water in out in the desert. I mean, they soaked it up quite a, in quite an extraordinary fashion. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether it has any longer term impact. But I, I don't think I ever left a conference. Uh, at the end of it, on, on we finished at Saturday uh, midday, oh no, afternoon. And uh, I think most of the students there came and thanked me more than once on the way out before they left. Uh, that's extraordinary. You expect a few of them to have been had a weekend that mattered to them, but almost without exception, they came and said, thank you. Uh, and I guess it's because that that sense that learning could actually matter to you in an important and ongoing way was, was an extraordinary idea for them. Uh, I don't think they can remember a single lecture or sermon that they've ever heard that they can remember in some detail, whereas I've got dozens in that category. Important lectures in medical school, uh, because they they were not given because somebody had written a curriculum and uh, was ticking off their little boxes, but because you were by the side of a patient's bed and the teacher was brilliant and realized this was a teaching moment that he could make you see more clearly what you needed to thoroughly understand. I still remember episodes like that that I carried with me for the rest of my life. Uh, I can't talk about the classification of renal disease without immediately having in my head the first person to to show me how it could be done. Uh, that sort of thing I don't think exists anymore. We are dying uh, in intellectual terms. No, it can come to life again. Uh, uh, there are there are bits of hope on that. The, the incredible success of, of um, Pride and Prejudice and the other Jane Austen uh, movies over the last little while uh, it gives me hope. It's very amusing for us actually that we uh, we gained another son in our family from the Rwanda war and Sally sent him to me and eventually we got him to Ottawa uh, as a refugee and uh, uh, he's now well established as a lawyer in Ottawa but shortly after he arrived although when he arrived he didn't speak English uh, uh, if we went out for a dinner or something like that and we came back late in the evening, it was quite likely that Victor would be watching the BBC uh, film of Pride and Prejudice, the six-part one. Here's a young man from Rwanda uh, who just loved Pride and Prejudice. And uh, we talked about it, and of course... It was a, the 18th century in that class was a man at a man at time in which people behaved 
with ritual courtesy, which still happened in Rwanda, was like that. Uh, so he could relate to 18th century Britain better than he could to uh, 20th century Canada, 21st century Canada. So there's hope when that barrier can be crossed. I mean, the, the lovely line when Elizabeth and Darcy realize the truth about them, and Darcy says to Elizabeth, you must have thought me devoid of all proper sentiment. Now, that's a sentence which would be meaningless to most people today. What on earth is he talking about? Proper sentiment? You, what you feel is who you are. There's nothing proper or improper about it. Oh, yes, there is in that world. Uh, but, of course, once you lose the sense of the fall, the idea that there could be proper and improper sentiment becomes unthinkable. It's only because we are in Chesterton's lovely phrase to keep reminding people that lovely phrases exist. We are the survivors of a colossal wreck that went down before the beginning of time, or at the beginning of time. He's talking about the fall. And because of that, all sorts of other things become not only important, but possible. I mean, in, in paradise before the fall, uh, they were innocents. It was innocent, completely innocent, childlike. But God knew that the fall was going to come, and since his objective was to have beings who could love him and he could love them because of what they know about the relationship over time, uh, he looked and said, let history roll. And it's still rolling. And in the end, we're going to say, Lord, it's all been good. All manner of things shall be well. That's, And we have a deep intuition that that is in fact the case. But those who brought up in the modern world where they say science is all, I mean, the COVID thing, people who knew nothing about science said, we're just following the science. No, you're following a few grossly reductionistic scientists and not able to find out the good ones, the best ones, who got it right, of course. So um, that sense went through uh, the whole weekend and uh, teaching discipleship in that context uh, and Whenever I do it, and I, I do it every time I find an audience who doesn't know this and take them through the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, it is a joy to see the power of our Lord's words. John, you talked about children and televisions earlier on in the talk. Let me paint a picture for you, and you could tell me what you'd recommend. So I'm going to talk about my family and some rhythms that we currently have. So I resisted a TV for a long time hearing you back in high school. I remember Mark Grubb, who introduced me to you, got me to that. And I was pretty proud of that. But then phones and computers came along that just kind of replaced television. With that being said, we also did buy a TV. We have a basement and we put it down to the basement. And the way that we use that is we play exercise videos on it on YouTube, me and my wife exercise. But the way that it interacts with the kids is we will do a movie night on Friday night also, we host a group for our church, and when the adults are upstairs, we find 
it easy to put the children downstairs on a movie. And when that movie turns off, it turns into chaos and the adults can't talk. So what would you say to me? Do I need to sell my television? Uh, you're in the position of choosing the lesser evils. So the most important thing is going to be training people how to use these machines because the, they are, as far as I'm concerned, the invention of the devil, but we can't, we can't bypass them now. You cannot fly to the States without a cell phone now. Uh, I need one. I can't do without it. That, that really does upset me, but there's no way around that. You don't have to have a television, but um, for sports, it can be very good. That's a relatively innocent use of time, so uh, I'm not going to be as clear-cut as I was in the past. We were blessed, there's no question about that, not to have a television in our family as a, a major feature ever. So that's something I could do. I could remove that television. Well, I don't know whether it's still possible. My my children are all, they've all moved to videos uh, because that's a better control. And certainly the ones that grew up in uh, Africa have been blessed in that because they had good videos. So I think I've told you that the, 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 the three children from Africa uh, know the whole of Much Ado About Nothing. They can join in the play when they're watching it, uh, as we found out when... We did it in our open-air theatre here, and the actors quickly realised that these uh, three kids knew every word of the play because uh, the Kenneth Branagh version is beautifully done and uh, it's worth having. So there are films out there that, that uh, I think one could use. They're not a great many for me, but... Uh, top of my list would be A Man for All Seasons. If you haven't shown that to your adult group, um, there's two versions. Uh, the older one with Paul Schofield and the later one with the American actor who played Moses in the Ten Commandments. I've forgotten his name at the moment. He's died relatively recently of dementia. You can probably remember his name. But A Man for All Seasons. It's the story of Thomas More's long battle with Henry VIII over the question of how far the monarch can demand that his servants go. And the last line, of course, is the famous, I die the king's good servant, but God's first, and they chopped off his head. Um, it's a brilliant movie from that point of view. Uh, character laid out, and the guy who wrote the, the, the script, Bolt, uh, as far as I know, it was not a Christian, but he understood what was at stake. And uh, that's certainly a, a top movie in our family. Um, there aren't many. Uh, I mean, there are others that we like to, to watch because they have connections for us, like uh, there's a lovely movie of, uh, what's it called? I forgot name block but it's set in in uh, with the bush people in South Africa in Nam Namibia and uh, it opens up as though it's a National Geographic uh, you know travel thing but it, it, it's uh, a lovely movie and we all enjoyed it because it contains so much of Africa that that, that, that we like and enjoy so uh, 
Uh, it's currently got name block for it, but it'll come back in a minute. But it shows you that uh, the Shakespeare movies I will watch because they're rich. The, the very fact that ordinary working people could go to the Globe Theatre and join in what Shakespeare was writing in Henry V. Of course, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V is also one that you can show to your children. Brilliantly done and a wonderful piece of artistic license in what they sing at the end. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a problem there. I mean, my grandchildren all love watching Star Wars forever, you know, so... In our basement here, there's actually an old, you know, VHS Star Wars that the kids go down in the basement and we won't hear from them for an hour or more as they watch Star Wars yet again, you know. Um, uh, we've loved the, the the Jane Austen movies and the classic movies of that sort, uh, the Hardy movies. There's there's plenty, not, not, not the Hardy Boys, the Thomas Harvey uh, Hardy movies. So... The classics of all sorts are, from my point of view, worth watching, especially if you've got great actors doing them and you see what they can do with with language. And there's much more in terms of what you can watch on on YouTube and the like. There's remarkable stuff out there now. How long before they filter it out, I don't know, but um, I haven't been making a list and I should do that. So, I haven't answered your question, uh, except that once you're aware of how great the problem is, resist the the chop-it-all-down one, because that's just going to antagonize your children. And how old are they? Well, how old's the oldest now? 9642, so 9. 9642. So, yeah, you, you've got to get them on your side. That's your game. When we came to Canada and Joanna went to school in came back crying after her first day in middle school are you and saying to Sally who fortunately was home are you and daddy going to divorce because the first six kids she talked to in high in mid, middle school all came from broken families um, now your kids would be horrified at the thought of divorce but it's roughly 50%, isn't it? And when you think, what proportion of America is now just shacking up? Um, how you find the narratives that can help them come to terms with that uh, and other things, that I'm not so good at and I need to work much more on that. I haven't kept up with... Uh, modern novelists other than Michael O'Brien. Um, if you haven't read Michael O'Brien, you must start at some point. Island of the World. Uh, if you, how, how many uh, people from your church come for an evening with you? Get a copy of Island of the World. I'd be very surprised if you can't find one who's got the gene, so to speak, for loving a great story. They will not be able to put it down and they will enthuse the rest and you will raise their level of reading. I've used that novel many times with people who I found reading trashy novels and saying, look, you can do better than that. Wendell Berry would be the other one that you could easily use given where you're in the States. And uh, the Wendell, Bi the Wendell Berry uh, Port William novels, 
they're actually an elegy for the death of Christianity in the Western world without being written elegiacally, but not in a nasty fashion, just in a very sad fashion. Read Watch With Me first, because it's funny, but it raises all sorts of issues. And if you ever ha have a church uh, retreat and you, need, and you have a talent night, you can always read the second chapter, especially if they're... Uh, uh, there's a considerable group of teetotalers in the church. It's hilariously funny, and it's set in Prohibition times. I won't spoil it for you. So those would do. I have to go along my list uh, shelves now, because I've been sorting out my N thousand books and finding a few that I'd forgotten I'd got and that I need to reread. Thank you, Dr. John. Thank you guys all for listening. If you enjoyed this, please like on YouTube. Make a comment if you'd prefer and leave a comment and review us on the podcast app of your choice. With that being said, thank you guys again so much, and we'll see you next week.